have your Bibles, that's going to be uh, especially helpful today. It's uh, something that's really important to do when you come to church here at the Journey. Man, you got that Bible on your phone, or, or if you're like me, you have to have the actual like paper book in your hands. Uh, Mark 14, 43 through 52, those are, that's the passage that we're going to take today. We're going to study these three things, three things. We're going to study about the arrest of Jesus. We're going to study uh, Peter's blunder when he, when he chops the, the guy's ear off. Uh, which is one of my uh, favorite moments in the entire Bible I get to talk about today. And then finally, many of you have asked, hey, what's up with the random naked dude in Mark 14? What's that mean? Why is that there? We'll get to that. Okay, later on. You have that to look forward to. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, we're going to study some random naked dude. Uh, because that's what's in the passage of scripture. We don't skip verses here, and it's all in here for a reason. We want to find out what that reason is. So we've been building, though, towards this moment, this critical moment when Jesus is being arrested just outside of the Garden of Gethsemane. We've been anticipating this because we've been talking about the betrayal of Judas. This is how Jesus is arrested. He's betrayed by one of his own disciples, one of the twelve, Judas. Nobody suspected a thing. So Judas and Jesus were the only two that saw this coming. No one else would have thought Judas would, would have ever been capable of this. There's no way. They didn't suspect a thing, but Judas knew in his heart he was going to do this. Jesus knew this was in the heart of Judas. Jesus saw right through Judas, just like he can see right through you and I, knows every one of our motivations. And so Judas had been secretly meeting with the chief priests and the elders and the scribes in the temple to uh, seek an opportunity to betray Jesus. And we know that they had offered him silver to do so. So while he had been secretly uh, plotting with those leaders, the Sanhedrin, Jesus knew that this was coming. Jesus orchestrated a few things himself. In order to not prematurely be uh, arrested and, and, and handed over by Judas, he secretly got the Passover meal ready sent Peter and John out to uh, get that place prepared for them while Jesus could hang out with Judas. And so they, they went to the upper room, and Jesus wanted to make sure he had that moment with Judas and his disciples so he could teach them. We know in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus taught them all sorts of things. We know that just sitting down at the Passover meal, he would have taught through the story of the Passover, a lot of teaching in this moment. And we know that Jesus wanted to have these particularly uh, intimate moments with his disciples to offer Judas an opportunity to repent, to confess, to, to turn around and not go down the road that he was traveling. So what did Jesus do? He washed his feet just like he washed the feet of all the other disciples. He said, you know, now you're clean, but, but not all of you are clean. And then, he, then he, he served the Passover meal and he said, you know, one of you will betray me. One of you that's dipping the bread in this sauce with me, one of you is going to be betraying me. And so they knew something was up. But every one of them were like, oh, oh man, is it, it's truly it's not going to be me. Even Judas, we're told, is especially uh, uh, articulated in that moment. Like, surely it's not going to be me, right? It's not, no way, no way. So nobody knew how to really put all of these things together. So... Judas now, though, we're told from John's account, he is like satanically determined 
to betray Jesus. And Jesus, through prayer in the garden, is divinely inspired to accept the fact that that's going to happen. Right? We see that Jesus, he didn't want to be betrayed. He doesn't want to be beaten. He doesn't want to be arrested. He doesn't want to be crucified. Matter of fact, in that Garden of Gethsemane prayer that we studied last week, Lord, remove this hour from me. Remove this cup from me. This cup of wrath. Remove this from me. I, I don't want to do this. Remove this cup from me, but yet not what I will, what you will. And so he's asking God the Father that this would not happen this way. But he gets his answer when he's there in the garden and when he stands up, and there he sees Judas and the soldiers coming. Now, here's something important to know about this, this section that we're studying. This is in all four Gospels. So, you know, that, that's not the case for a lot of things. A lot of times you get this, this detail about the life and ministry of Jesus, and it's just in like one or two Gospels, or maybe three. And, but this is a moment, the, the arrest of Jesus is in all four Gospels, and it's, so you can look at Matthew 26, 47 through 56. You can look at Luke 22, 47 through 53. And you can look at John 18, 1 through 11. And when you do those things, you'll see that there's a ton of details that are unique to each one of these gospel accounts. Totally unique. And so if you want to get all of the, all of the details to this one chaotic moment, you really got to study every single one of those passages. And I'll tell you straight up. When you get all the facts on the table, if you were attempting to try to put every little detail in, in perfect chronological order, it's really difficult to do. It can be done. There's plausible uh, ways to do this, but it's really difficult to do. But I'm going to try to sprinkle in some of those details as we study Mark's gospel. Mark, Mark doesn't have time for all of those details. Remember, Mark is the efficient gospel, the immediately gospel is that word that's used over and over. He, he, he doesn't get caught up in a lot of the intricate details. He just wants to, you to know this is the play-by-play. -play. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. But I'm going to try to sprinkle in some of those other details just so we can get a, a fuller picture of everything that's going on. But it's no wonder, though, that each gospel writer remembers details that are unique to that gospel because it's chaos. Right? Every, every, every person in here, on some level, you know what it's like to be betrayed, don't you? Like every, every single one of us on some level has been betrayed. And that feeling you get when you realize you're betrayed, isn't it terrible, right? It's, it can be overwhelming. You're frantic. I mean, it, it's no wonder that in each one of these accounts, those individuals recall certain things that the other ones don't. Because it's hard to keep everything straight when there's so much confusion and, and disorder t like playing out in, in front of you. And so uh, we're, we're going to consider those four accounts as best we can as we go through this, but uh, what, we, what we find though in the midst of this chaos is that, and, and you don't want to miss this uh, at all, if you miss this you're going to miss the comfort that's in this moment. In the midst of all this chaos we see that God is in complete control. What a wonderful truth that we learn over and over and over again in scripture. Because your life and my life often feels like confusion and chaos and disorder. It feels like it's completely out of control. And what we learn in scripture is God tells us, hey, just so you know, things are never out of my control. I am completely sovereign. Everything falls under my providence. And that's exactly what we see here. And that's exactly what Jesus says in the midst of the chaos. It's almost like he wants to remind himself and those around him, hey, 
You'll hear him say this, it's written. Things are going to unfold exactly the way they were supposed to because God is sovereign. What a wonderful truth to remind yourself of when you are feeling confused and you are feeling everything's out of control. We remind ourselves that we worship a God who is in complete control. He's never, you know, worried. He's, he's never, uh, the, that old saying, uh, Jesus, or God doesn't drive an ambulance. There's never an emergency for God because he's, he's in control. And so what a, what a great truth. So they're in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been praying. He's been waking his disciples up over and over because they keep falling asleep. They don't stay alert. And then all of a sudden, I'll read verse 42. That's the last verse we read last week. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now let's read verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So this week there was a full moon. I got home late several nights this week. I had just different meetings going on, uh, things with the church and uh, things even here at the school. And so I, I rolled up into my driveway like at 9 o'clock multiple times this week. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. and the, the, the sky was super clear. It was a full moon. And isn't it so beautiful? Anytime I get uh, home that late and I, and I have a moment to just be outside when there's a full moon, I love it. I like to take it in. No matter how cold it is, I'll just go sit down in a lawn chair, just, even if just for five minutes. And it, the moon was so bright this week that like, there were shadows all over my yard from the trees and things like that. I, I mean, it's like you could just walk through the yard with the lights on in the middle of the night when the moon's that bright, right? Well, we know that th- this is during Passover, right? They're celebrating Passover. That's why they are in Jerusalem. So Passover... 100% of the time happens when there's a full moon. And so, without a doubt, there was a full moon going on. Was there an overcast that night? Well, I can't prove that one way or the other. But I, when I imagine this moment playing out, I just imagine the clear skies, the, the stars twinkling in the sky, and they, don't, they, don't even have the, they didn't even have the light pollution back then that we have now, right? And, and the moon being full, he could have seen that band of soldiers coming from a long ways away. Could have, could have seen that Judas was coming up over the hill. And where they were on the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was, they could have seen over a, a, you know, visibility was high is what I'm trying to say. And so they might have seen Judas coming, but they definitely heard him because of the size of the crowd. That word crowd is used. So the crowd is armed with swords and clubs. Now, this crowd, we're told in Mark, is from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, we get more details from those other Gospels. And so, Luke is a little more specific. In that crowd were officers of the temple. So, when you went to the temple in Jerusalem, Rome allowed the Jews to have, like, their own police force. And there in the temple, in particular, they didn't want Roman soldiers walking around the temple courts and stuff like that. That's holy ground. They had to keep the Romans out of there. They keep the Gentiles out and, and stuff. But they, so they allowed them to have their own police force. So the chief priests, the scribes, the elders—that's known as the the, the ruling councils called the the Sanhedrin. They were in charge of the temple guard. And so the chief priests and scribes, working with Judas, gave Judas access to this 
group of temple guards, and, and we're also told in John's account that in addition to the temple guards, there's a cohort or a band of soldiers. That's a word you wouldn't use to describe the temple guard. That's a word you would use to describe Roman guards. And without a doubt, Rome would not have let something like this play out without their nose right in the middle of it. If you're going to go arrest someone and, and it could potentially break out into a fight, Rome's like, oh, no, no, we're, we're going to accompany you on this arrest because we're not going to let any chaos break out of Passover. That's not, that's not going to happen. We know that they would have had thousands of extra soldiers in Jerusalem this time of year around Passover. Just in case any sort of revolt started to spark, they were going to put the hammer down on that. So in this crowd, we know from all the gospel accounts, there were the temple guard, there were Roman soldiers, and there, were, there was Judas. On the conservative side, we're talking about a few dozen people. A few dozen people, and we know that the, the Roman soldiers, they would have had the swords. And the temple guard, they would have been armed with clubs. And so that's why Mark says, well, this crowd had swords and clubs. You know, those, those clubs, you think of like a police baton. Or if you're a hillbilly, your beaten stick. Like they would have had, that's what they would have been armed with, okay? So this, this is definitely a crowd with Judas at this point in time. Let's pick up at verses 44 and 45. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. So that one element that makes this betrayal hurt, especially bad, is that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. He uses a kiss to identify Jesus. There's a few things that sound strange to, to us here, one of which is the fact that, did they really have to identify who Jesus was? I thought everyone in Israel knew who Jesus was. I thought everybody, you figure everybody would know what he looked like. Why did they need Judas to identify Jesus? Well, of course, that's strange to us because in our day, we know what everybody looks like. We have social media pages and things like that. We know what every celebrity looks like down to the pores on their face. We know what everybody looks like that we interact with in society because they've taken 85,000 selfies of themselves and put it all over the internet. And so we know exactly what everyone looks like all the time. We can't imagine someone with like, uh, who's popular in culture to not know what they look like. But obviously that wasn't the case back then. They had to make sure they had the right guy. They needed some way to identify Jesus, and that's how Judas was so valuable to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They wanted to make sure they got the right guy. And so obviously they didn't know, you know, how, how, what he looked like down to every little detail. They've, heard, they've seen him in the temple courts and things like this, but everybody in general would not have known exactly what he looked like. There would have been a little bit of a question mark there to where they would want some assurance that they got the right guy. And so Judas is like, I'm your guy. I, I'm, I'm your man. I'm how you're going to be able to make this identification. And he does it with a kiss, another thing that's strange to us. Like, typically in our culture, we don't greet each other with a kiss. We greet each other with a, a handshake or a bro hug, right? You've got to get those extra two little slaps in there to make sure it's the bro hug. But we don't typically kiss, you know, a lot of cultures still do, though, to this day. And when you uh, meet someone from a culture that's like that and they're all kissing on you and stuff, you know, we're, we're all like, dude, 
don't touch me, <laughs> right? It's, just, it's a little strange. Um, but yeah, so, so if you wanted to honor someone, you want to, want to especially show them respect, you would kiss them on the cheek or kiss them on the hand. That was a way that you showed that love and that respect, and that's what makes what Judas does especially twisted. He's, he's saying, I'll identify Jesus for you. You'll know it's him. He's the one I'm especially going to honor. He's the one I'm going, going to show love and respect to. And so that method is just particularly twisted. You'll see that that word kiss is in your text twice. So there's something we can't see here because we're reading it in English. And so this happens a lot of times. If you really want to know what's in the Bible, you've got to look back at the Greek words and, and what they mean and how they're positioned in the phrase and things like that. And so I, that's part of my job. I like to do that homework for you throughout the week, and then I show you my notes. And that's, that's what I love to do. That's what I'm passionate about. Well, that word kiss is in there twice. And there's a variation that happens in the Greek text that we can't see, and it helps us get a little more sense of how this moment is playing out. The first time kiss is in there, he's telling the soldiers, hey, you'll know which one he is because I'm going to kiss him. That word kiss means to kiss. It's just that simple. But there's a different Greek word for kiss used when he actually kisses him. Later when it says rabbi, and he kissed him. That Greek word for kiss means to kiss earnestly. So he's, he's really pouring it on thick. He's not just kissing him. He's kissing him earnestly. And so there's an emphasis there that we miss in the English that when Judas shows up, he's like, Rabbi, old buddy, old pal, one who I honor among everyone else. And he kisses him on the cheek, and he really lays one on him. Let me kiss you on the cheek, Jesus. It is so good to see you. I mean, he's putting on a show, all while there's a band of soldiers behind him. The, the, you, know, you imagine just being in the moment, being one of the disciples, like, so confused. What, what, what is he doing? Why are all these people with him? Where has he been? Why hasn't he been praying with us? Why is he making such a fuss over Jesus right now? They're full of confusion. But Jesus isn't fooled for a second. Remember, he knows what's in the heart of Judas. And in Matthew, we're told exactly how Jesus responds. In Matthew's account, he gives us this detail. He says, friend, do what you came to do. In other words, Jesus addresses him immediately. When Judas is pouring it on thick, Jesus is like, hi, friend. Just do what you came to do. Enough with the act. We don't have to do all this. Just do what you came to do. I just imagine that cutting Judas like a knife. I hope it did. I just imagine him, you know, he knows he's going to be caught. He knows he's going to be busted. He's no, he knows he's going to be the betrayer. But I just think that when Jesus addresses him in that endearing way, friend, that it just cut right to his heart. And then what happens next is my, is my favorite moment in the Bible. And I love preaching it. It shouldn't be my favorite moment in the Bible. I'll just tell you, it shouldn't be. It just is. It appeals to my fallen nature. It, it appeals to that side of me that wants to be a macho man, Randy Savage. I mean, it just, it, I, I love this moment. It's so, 
incredibly just cool, but it's also so instructive, so instructive. There's a big lesson to learn here. So I'm going to spend less time on the macho side of it and more time on, the, on the, just the, the lesson that we learned. But read 46, read along with me in 46 uh, through 47. And they, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Yeah. I mean, he's being betrayed. What are they going to do? They're going to kill people. <laughs> it, just, it makes sense. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who drew the sword. So, okay, let's go to Mark, Matthew's account. What's Matthew say? Matthew just tells us that one of the disciples drew a sword. He doesn't tell us who it is. That's okay. We got Luke's account. We'll go to Luke. Luke doesn't tell us who drew the sword. John is the rat. And there's a reason for that. A lot of historians believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written chronologically first. They were written earlier in the first century. And so they didn't want to give up their brother Peter. They, they wanted to keep his, conceal his identity so he wouldn't get in any, any further trouble for hacking off this dude's ear. But John, he's, he's writing his gospel more down the road, doesn't need to conceal Peter's identity anymore, and so he lets the cat out of the bag. Yeah, it was definitely Peter. I'm not taking the fall for that dude. So Peter is just being Peter here, right? Peter is acting first and then thinking second, which is why he makes so much sense to me. Like in the heat of the moment, you just, gotta, you just do, right? Solve the problem. Before you think about solving the problem, just start solving it. And this is exactly why Peter makes perfect sense to us. Peter sees three dozen soldiers armed with swords and clubs. Any rational human being in that moment, if you thought for any amount of time whatsoever, you would know it's over. I'm not going to take out three dozen of them with my little sword. But for Peter, he's not rational at all. He's like, oh, we're just getting started. There's nothing over here. It's time, it's time to get it on. He goes like Geronimo, William Wallace, Kamikaze, all at the same time. It's incredible. Peter's response is just immediately like, I want to kill you. And doesn't it sound so virtuous, right? Like his, his, his response. Like John's account says, Peter's, Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now, we've got to understand that these swords, these are not fencing swords that have a lot of precision. You don't get this out and, I want to, you know, take your ear clean off. Clearly, Peter was trying to kill this guy. He missed. He missed his face, and he hit his ear. How did it happen? I don't know. These are the things I like to play out. Like, you know, if he's chopping down like this, you figured he would have buried the sword, like, in his shoulder or something like that. But... I just wonder if he didn't just pull it out of the sheath and just, he starts swinging immediately. This guy does like a matrix move like this and wow, kick, yeah, yeah. It's awesome. This action-packed thriller moment. And so we want to cheer. We want to cheer. They're betraying Jesus. He's doing something honorable. He's protecting our Savior. What does Jesus say? Well, if you read back in Matthew's account, in Matthew 26, 52 through 53, it says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword 
will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? And how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He looks at Peter and he's like, man, you're about to mess up the whole thing. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Luke gives us a detail that the other ones don't. Luke being a physician, remember, he's a doctor by, by trade, and so he, he, when he's writing his gospel, he's interested in things like, you know, ears being reattached to bodies. And so he, he's the one that gives us the detail uh, that Jesus says, no more of this, and he, he touched his ear and healed him. So in the moment, Jesus heals the man's ear. He rebukes Peter, stops everyone in their tracks by healing the man's ear, undoing the sinfulness of Peter right there on the spot. But again, we're, we're drawn to this moment because to do something so extreme to advance the cause of Christ seems like it's really a good thing, right? He has good intentions. Should we not mimic this? Should we not aspire to be like Peter? Oh, well, no. Peter uses inappropriate means that are not to advance the cause of Christ, that are, that are, it's means that are not at all representative of what Jesus wants. But, but he has good intentions. Isn't that what's important? He had good intentions. We like to use that defense for a lot of people in our society today too, right? There's so much Jesus junk in our, in our culture today. Just a lot of Jesus junk. It's not good for you. And what do we say? We defend those people who, who produce Jesus junk, and we say, well, they have good intentions. Well, good intentions don't justify doing something that's counter to the movement of Christ, that's counter to what he wants, that's not representative uh, not, uh, of his will. So, I mean, good intentions don't excuse anything if it's counter to Jesus. And we often think, like, we think we never do anything counter to the will of Jesus because our intentions are good. Well, how much of the Jesus junk out there today would Jesus just outright rebuke? How much stuff have we done with good intentions that Jesus would just say, what are you doing? Put your sword back in its sheath. You know, we think we could never do anything, if our, as long as our intentions are good, we can never do anything counter to the cause of Christ, but this, it's just not true. You know, Peter didn't believe that he would ever do anything counter to the will of Christ. But yet, there he is, swinging swords, trying to kill people. Such an important lesson. So we have the arrest. We have this incredible moment of Peter and his response that is probably something we would hope that we would do in the moment, but we know is wrong, actually, when we think about it. And then we have this. Oh, I'm sorry, we got two more verses before we get to that part. We got a little bit more. 40, let's take 48 and 49. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against me as robbers with swords and clubs to capture me, or capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. So Jesus is rebuking Peter, he's healing the man, and now he's rebuking everybody there to arrest him. What are you, all this ruckus is for me? You guys are out here arresting me? I've been teaching in the temple. I haven't done anything in, in secret. Everything that I'm about, I've talked about in public. You've heard it. You know what I'm about. And yet they're coming there to, 
to, to capture him like he's some robber? Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Like a, treat me like a robber? Why, you know what? Here, here's something else that we miss um, unless we understand the cultural context. Again, this is the kind of thing that's important to understand. So Romans, Roman soldiers, the, the temple guard and stuff like that, they would, especially the Roman soldiers, they weren't caught up in uh, getting robbers. Why, why does Jesus refer to himself as a robber right here? Well, it's because that has a deeper meaning in that culture and in that time and to the Romans specifically. So Rome would not have been trying to, uh, you know, keep order to the point in which they're going after the, the kid who steals a loaf of bread, like Aladdin or something like that. That's not what, they're, that's not what Rome's doing there. Rome, they had a, like a, the, the term robber or thief, that's the word they would have used for an insurrectionist. That's like the slang, slang term they would have given to someone who they feared would, would try to raise up a revolt. They would refer to them as a thug or a robber because they're trying to rob something that belongs to Rome. And so if you're reading the King James Version, you have the word thief. If you're reading the version I have, the ESV, it says robber. Uh, some translations say outlaw. But many other translations are doing the extra work to make sure you don't miss that little detail. If you have an NIV in your hands right now, Jesus doesn't refer to himself as a robber. He says this, am I leading a rebellion? See, they get to the heart of what that word would have meant in that culture. The, the New Living Translation says that Jesus says this, Am I some dangerous revolutionary? It's because they're getting to their meaning in that cultural context. It, even in the NASB, it says, uh, are, are you treating me as a man inciting a revolt? They are getting to that deeper meaning that he knows they are there not because they think he's a thief, they know that he's that they he knows that they are there because they think he's trying to raise up an army and overcome Rome and kick them out of Israel. And that's not what he's about. That's what people wanted him to be about. But that's not the Messiah he turned out to be. But Jesus is content to accept all of this confusion. He's content to accept all of the disorder that's in the midst, midst of swirling around in, in chaos. Because he says, But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let this play out exactly how it was supposed to play out. Exactly how God predetermined it would play out. Of course, he's referring to that verse that he's already quoted two paragraphs before in Zechariah 13, 7. You remember in, the, in, in two, two paragraphs earlier, Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, just so you know, this is on the way to the garden. He says, just so you know, you're all going to fall away. Because it, it, it's been written that you're all going to fall away. And he, and he quotes Zechariah 13, 7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is God, of course, speaking to his people through the prophet Zechariah, saying, I, God, will strike down the shepherd, your leader, and the sheep, all you people, will scatter as a result of it. And Jesus quotes that messianic prophecy that would have been written centuries before his time and he said that was ultimately about me and that was ultimately about this moment god is sovereign over this arrest god is sovereign over all this perceived confusion he is going to strike me down as your shepherd and the sheep will scatter you're all going to fall away and so he comes back to that truth let the scriptures be fulfilled. And that's exactly what happened in that moment. They run. 
Check this out. Let's read 50 through 52. And they all left him and fled. There's the fulfillment, and there's more. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Well, okay. (laughs) That's strange. You're just reading through the Gospel of Mark. What just happened? Well, it makes sense that they all ran away and fled because that fulfills Scripture. But then we get this extra detail where this dude appears in the text, this young man. He's in nothing but a linen cloth like his tidy whities out there for some reason around this crowd uh, of, of soldiers and, and Judas and the disciples. Why, why is he there? And then all of a sudden, you know, he's doing like a Bo Jackson spin move. They get a hand on him, grab his, his tidy whities and he's just running off naked. And this is inspired scripture. This is here for a reason. So many of you leading up to this moment, hey, I've been reading ahead. What's up with the naked dude in chapter 14? And my most common answer is this. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll tell you if I don't know. And, and I don't always know. But and let me tell you, I, I got into the commentaries. Again, doing the homework, getting in the different commentaries. Uh, I read 13 different possibilities, 13 different possibilities that scholars will, uh, you know, they'll die on this hill because, no, it has to be this because of this because of this. And uh, it was exhausting. Most of them were garbage, uh, to be honest with you. But I want to I w- I tell you about two because they seem really probable. It, it makes, it makes a, a ton of sense. One of them might be true. They might both be true at the same time. Here's, here, here's what they are. First of all, the, uh, most, the most common interpretation of this moment is that this is John Mark. John Mark, we remember, is the author of the Gospel of Mark. His name is John Mark. And so here's why most people think that this is John Mark in this moment. Because we learn later on in the Bible, in Acts chapter 12, we know John Mark is not one of the 12 disciples. John Mark, though, lives with his mother in Jerusalem. We learn that from Acts chapter 12, verse 12. We know that in Acts chapter 12, John Mark and his mother, they host Christian gatherings. So where they live is big enough to host a group of people. Therefore, it's very likely, or at least plausible, that they hosted the upper room Passover meal. That when the disciples went into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, that the upper room was John Mark's house. Now, okay, so if this is John Mark's house, how did he end up here naked? Well, we know that at the end of the Passover meal, Jesus turns to Judas and says, go do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And he leaves. He leaves Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. So it's possible at that point then that Jesus, uh, they're, they're collecting their things, they're done They decide to go to the Mount of Olives. John Mark and his mother stay in the upper room where they live to clean up after the mess and go to bed. He's going to bed in his whitey tidy, sleeps in his underwear, just like many of you. And so the disciples then go to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Meanwhile, Judas with the band of soldiers and the temple guard, where are they going to look for Jesus? Where's the first place they're going to go to go arrest Jesus? Well, they're going to go to the upper room because that's where Judas left Jesus. So they show up to the upper room. Hey, where's Jesus? Well, they're gone. They went to the Mount of Olives. John Mark starts doing the math. Why are you with soldiers? Why are you looking for Jesus? Why was Jesus so stressed out? Why did they leave in haste? 
oh man, something's wrong here. I got to find Jesus. And so it's it's possible that John Mark takes off in his tidy whities He's not even he's not even sticking around long enough to grab his coat. I got to find Jesus before these soldiers find Jesus. And he's running around. He's not sure where to go, but where he ends up. He, he, the, the soldiers beat him to the Garden of Gethsemane. He shows up while the action is taking place. And clearly they associate him with, as a follower of Jesus. Hey, arrest him too. So while the disciples are fleeing, John Mark's showing up. They're trying to grab him. He does the Bo Jackson spin move. He's nude and he's running off into the dark. So now that we got past that, now you know why I'm not going through all 13 of them. <laughs> it makes sense, and, and it would also make sense that if this were the case, John Mark would want to, want, want to let his readers know, hey, I, I witnessed this. He's writing down Peter's account this entire time, but there was one account that Peter writes down that John Mark actually got to watch. And this is it, and this is when he's in the moment. There's, there's your first option. That's what most Christians go with, and I think it's very uh, plausible. Here's the second interpretation of this text that I think is worth noting. This young man, though a young man was there and, and this literally happened, this young man who flees away naked in the moment is a symbolic representation of what the disciples are doing. They are fleeing in shame and the shame of their sin fleeing from this moment and so this young man fleeing away naked is a symbolic representation of those disciples why would that be a symbolic representation well we know that there's a connection here that we see from the get-go in the bible between our nakedness and sin after adam and eve in the garden sinned what's one of the first things that happened well, they suddenly have this uncomfortable awareness of their own nudity. And so they're, they're naked and they're, they're ashamed of it for the first time after they sin. And so they try to cover it with fig leaves. We, that's, we, we all know that moment. And then, and then so when you, when you read through Scripture, because of that moment, our wickedness and our shame and our humiliation is often referred to as nakedness. Because we have that foundational understanding of sin with Adam and Eve in the garden. Therefore, this young man is a visible representation of that shame and humiliation of the disciples. They are running away in, in shame. And it's like it's, their, their nakedness is revealed. They fell away just like Jesus said they would. So maybe one of those is true. Maybe both of them are true at the same time but it's an interesting connection to make and it's an interesting thought to have right here in this moment as we consider every week when we gather our sin and our shame and our humiliation before God and his holiness his perfect holiness when we read through scripture especially when we get to revelation we see that God's judgment upon the wicked is described to us several times as his judgment on on nakedness on that shame and on that humiliation. And then we're told as we get further through Revelation that there will be one day, though, when we stand before God as if at a wedding banquet feast 
We are there as the bride of Christ. The church is referred to as the bride, and the groom is Jesus, our Savior. That's, these are terms given to us so that we can understand the significance of that moment. And we're told that the bride, that is us, in this moment, that will literally happen in our future as believers, we will be clothed in that moment. It's not that we haven't sinned. It's not that we aren't humiliated because of our our sinfulness over the course of our life. It's that we are clothed specifically in the righteousness of Christ. We aren't clothed in our own righteousness. He covers over our sinfulness. He covers over our shame. He covers over our humiliation. We are redeemed. We are a redeemed bride. We are that redeemed bride right now. Now, we are seen as perfectly righteous before God because we as believers are putting our faith in the righteousness of Christ. That's what Christianity is. Christianity isn't trying to be like Peter and advancing the cause of Christ in any way we see right and fit, and we're going to make this right. That's not Christianity. Christianity is Jesus made it right. Jesus did all of the work. If anything, I I would screw things up if I had to contribute to it in any way, shape, or form. I would be just like Peter, thinking I'm doing the right thing, but it wouldn't be good at all. We will be perfectly righteous before God, not because, oh, we didn't fall away because we were so confident like all of the other disciples who said, we're not going to deny you, we're not going to fall away, no way I'd betray you. We're not standing before God someday because we got it right enough. When we stand before God, the only reason we get a seat at the table at that banquet feast is because his righteousness is imputed to us through faith. We are clothed in his righteousness. Therefore, since I am clothed with his righteousness, I am seen as perfect before God the Father. I am seen as sinless because of Jesus. That's what we come to to remember every time we gather. So we're going to take communion right now and remember that that bread is the righteousness of Christ. We remember, I'm not good enough. Jesus was good enough. And he covers over my sin. I take the juice to remember, I don't have to work off my sin, prove myself to God. Jesus paid my debt. He paid my ransom. And I have seen it as perfectly acceptable to God. So let's pray and let's worship in that frame of mind today. Lord, we thank you for, again, these moments in Scripture to study with one another. We, we thank you for even the moments that are, are disorienting to read and we're unsure of, Lord, you always have just this supernatural way of, of just changing how we think and nudging us in the right direction and renewing us and helping us to come back to your redemption and your victory for us. We thank you for that. And I pray that as we walk into this time of communion, we remember the gospel that saves us, not the gospel that we need to add to our works. It's the gospel that does all the work. Lord, help us to worship in that frame of mind here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Mm -hmm.